We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was senior minister. Heavenly Father, we do pray for your wisdom, that we might hear and understand your word, that we may put it into operation in our lives, and not live as fools. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening, as we look at Psalm 14, if you would open up there, we're going to be looking at a distinctively Christian doctrine, namely sin. It seems a sad way to finish what has been such a magnificent and beautiful weekend. I mean, this is hard to believe it's August, isn't it? Uh, I'm expecting, you know, that in August we'll be deep in winter, and that's a good time to preach a sermon on sin. But uh, after a bright sunny day today, I feel like talking about love and joy, happiness and a whole host of things. And there is a little touch of that down at verse 7, which we will get to. But uh, I'm sorry to say, folks, sin. Um, So as the evening draws in and it gets darker, I guess it's a more appropriate sermon for us to be hearing. Most Australians don't understand sin. They practice it often and regularly, but they don't understand it. They think they do. But for all their experience of practice, they're no good at understanding. When we use the word, there is such misunderstanding that over recent decades, many Christian preachers have given up using the word sin and choose some synonym like rebellion or something like that. Even when the non-Christian understands what we mean by sin, they rarely agree with us. And yet, it is one of the doctrines of Christianity that is easiest to demonstrate and prove to be true. For sin is all around about us, it is easy to illustrate and it makes more sense of our world than any alternative doctrine that is available in any alternative system of thought. Let me start therefore with some definitional observations. I only have Webster's on my computer so you get Webster's but if you check the other dictionaries they're much the same. Here's the definitions of sin found in Webster's. As a noun, it means a transgression of divine law to any act regarded as such a transgression, a special or willful violation of some religious or moral principle. Three, any reprehensible action, serious fault or offence, and the verbs follow on in the same line. I've got no complaint about Webster's. I think that's pretty much how people use the word sin. It's just not how the Bible uses the word sin, and it's not what Christians mean by the word sin. But that's not Webster's fault. Uh, Webster is just describing how people use the word. The fact that we Christians use the word differently in an odd, strange fashion, well, that's our problem, not Webster's problem. Although it is a little strange that it's our word that has been taken over by the community and made to mean something actually different. See, firstly notice whether sin is morality or rebellion. So the average misunderstanding of sin is that it's about morality about doing good or bad, uh, particularly bad, or breaking some law. Come back to Webster's and see it there for a moment. You see, in Webster's, it is religious. It's not just law in general, which is good. So in the first definition, it talks about divine law, or the second definition talks about religious or moral principle. 
but you'll notice that it's still about rules and regulations and breaking rules and regulations. And so the first one's about transgression of a law. The second one is about transgression against, and again, a violation of moral. Or again, the third one is about fault or offence. But for the Christian, fundamental to the idea of sin is rebellion against God. Fundamental to the idea of sin is a personal relationship failure, a rejecting of God, an ignoring of God. That's what is fundamental, but it's not included in any of those definitions. Secondly, therefore, there's confusion over sin and sins. For the non-Christian, the world focuses on sins. And so, in each of those definitions up that were there, you'll see they're all about actions here, doing this, doing that. But the Bible is much more concerned with sin. The very rebelliousness of heart that gives rise to the individual actions. It's like the difference between a symptom and a disease. Sin is the disease that issues forth in all kinds of symptoms called sins. But you mustn't get confused between the two. The symptoms of the disease are not the disease. Attending to the symptoms, curing the symptoms, healing the symptoms, alleviating the symptoms are all very good, but they, that doesn't cure the disease. If you cure the disease, then presumably the symptoms will in time disappear. Or, or think about our fights. You see, when we fight, when we argue, we, we argue over all kinds of things, down to silly arguments like young married couples who I've known have argued over how to squeeze the toothpaste tube, whether it is just randomly or from the bottom very carefully. There's all kinds of arguments that people will have, whether the toilet paper roll should have be out of the wall or roll down from the other side of the wall. It's one of those men-women arguments that happens in the best-respected families. But the particular matters over which we fight, stop thinking about toilet paper rolls and which ways you're going. I can see people there trying to remember how they forget it. The particular matters over which we fight are really fairly unimportant. They're not the problem. The problem is the relationship breakdown of which this particular matter is just the, the scene of the last battle. Once the relationship breaks down, once the husband and wife enter into hostility, once the flatmates can't stand each other, then you will find fault on a hundred different issues and when the relationship is working smoothly and well, you don't even notice there are those problems. The individual problems are actually not what the fight is about. But when you're in the middle of the fight, you concentrate heavily on the toothpaste tube. You, you focus down on that little bit that you can particularly win. But it's the relationship. Sin is our rebellion against God. It is our rejection of God. It is our turning back on God and ignoring God. Thirdly, there is a confusion over the universality of sin. See, most Australians will acknowledge that everyone is guilty. When somebody does something wrong that you want to be forgiving and kind about, you say, well, it's only human. To say it's only human is to say, well, all humans do the wrong thing from time to time. And so we acknowledge that sin is universal, that, that people do things that are wrong from 
To err is human, to forgive is divine, wrote Alexander Pope. But people don't really believe it's universal like this. For most of us divide the community between the good and the bad, between those whose behaviour and morality is acceptable and those for whose behaviour and morality is unacceptable. And most people see themselves in the acceptable category. Rarely do people see themselves as part of the unacceptable part of community. And so we see sin as the people who are worse than us, the people who have done things that we would never dream of doing, sometimes through just sheer lack of imagination, I may say, but we wouldn't think of doing those kinds of things because they're those people, whereas we are not like those people. Most people see themselves and others as fundamentally good, with occasional slips over minor matters. Because it's not like that, friends, really. It's a deception in our heads that that is the way we are. The first um, uh, shopping centre, shopping mall in Sydney, was Roselands. It was built in the 1960s. Anyone want to challenge that? 1960s, I think it was about built then. And when it was built, it was massive. The largest shopping mall in the Southern Hemisphere. I always like those statistics. And of course, when you look at Roselands today, it's fairly small bickies, although I understand it's been extended. In the early days of Roselands, they had problems. One of the problems was that they had a blackout. It hadn't occurred to them to plan for blackouts. And of course, there's no windows in a shopping mall. And so when it blacks out, it is really black. The, blackout, the first blackout they had only lasted a couple of minutes. And then they discovered when the lights went on that they had lost property from every shop in the whole shopping mall and from almost every part of every shop because all the people stumbling around in the dark just happened to knock things into their bags, their, their uh, BAGs, I can't remember what it means now, I, 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 I should have written that down. They've dropped into their bags and stumbled home unaware of it and when they got home they didn't think they'd stolen it because obviously the shop had given it to them as a present. Either that or there was one thief loose in Roselands who was running very quickly all over the shopping centre in those two or three minutes collecting up. Or could it be that given the opportunity all people everywhere across Roselands were thieves? Well, Christianity would go for the latter conclusion because we know all people are rebellious against God. And so that a large number of people took hold of the opportunity and stole does not surprise Christians in the slightest or shouldn't surprise us but of course the non-Christian community thinks everybody's really good and there's just a couple of bad people who are running all over Roselands. But it is a self-deception, it's about ourselves as well. Cole Marshall, Archie Poulos and I were travelling home in a taxi from town and Cole, sitting in the front seat, shared the gospel with the driver. Archie and I listened carefully because Cole is one of the masters of being able to explain to people kindly and sympathetically the great truths of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and because we were busy praying like mad for the taxi driver. The taxi driver was happy about all kinds of things that Cole was saying except the idea that he was evil. That was, that was not right. He was a good person. He had never, he said, ever done a bad thing to anybody. 
which is a big claim when you think about it. I'm not sure how many of us would want to go down that far, but he's at the point of argument. He's got to make his point, hasn't he? In the point of argument, we all, well, many of us overstate the case a little bit just to kind of make sure we win, don't we? And so he was adamant he had never done anything wrong, never hurt anybody, because his definition of wrong had very little to do with rebellion against God. It had to do with doing bad things to other people. He'd never hurt anybody. He was very interested and so he shared his uh, name and address with Cole. Uh, He lived down in the Mittagong kind of area and Cole said he had some Christian friends down there that he'd contact and that they could continue having this conversation. It was interesting as we listened to the uh, name and address, I didn't just hear and you think, oh good, and that's wonderful that this conversation can continue. We got out, paid our bill and off we went. It was either that night or the next day, I can't remember which, that we heard the news on his name came out as the news because he'd been arrested by the police for being uh, involved in drug dealing which he'd been in prison for previously and had a long record of. Here was a man who never had hurt anybody ever in his life. He was just a drug pusher, that's all. But I believe that he believed he had never hurt anybody. I believe he was self-deceived. He was sincere in his protestations that he had never hurt anybody because he hadn't hurt anybody he knew. His own family he looked after, the kinds of friends and relatives he was kind to and generous to. You can be very kind and generous to all the people that matter to you and think of yourself as a kind, generous person and not really pay attention to the effects down the track. That's why most people don't think they're stealing when they fill in false tax returns or fudge the figures. They don't feel they're stealing when they actually exaggerate their claims in the insurance policies because it's a company, it's somebody out there. It's, a, it's not got to do with me and my family. I've never hurt anybody. I've just stolen from the tax department and therefore hurt everybody. I've just stolen from the insurance company and therefore put insurance premiums up for everybody. But I'm a good person, you see. I I don't do bad things. That is, it's not surprising that truth and lies are part of our problem. They dominate our conversation about sin. For when a relationship sours and fails, the ability of people involved to understand the truth declines rapidly. When you get caught, as I have been in marriage counselling, well, you hear what the husband has to say and then you listen to what the wife has to say and you wonder if they've both been married to two different people because there is no vague recognition of the two stories that you're talking about the same marriage. Once we enter into the destruction of a relationship, our grasp on truth and reality dissipates rapidly. We are under the terrible confusion about the truth of God and about the truth of ourselves and we become full of lies and we even think that lying is fairly normal. So a study done at the University of California uh, last two years ago, I think it was, no, 1998, so it's four years old now, they strapped on tape recorders to a group of people, recorded every conversation they had and then went through afterwards and talked to the people about when they told lies in these conversations. I mean, it's pretty boring kind of research, isn't it? You've got to live your life, then you've got to go and listen to it re-replayed hour after hour. And they identified their lies and they lied at the average of one every eight minutes. That is normal conversation in California. 
I can't imagine that it's any different here in Sydney, can you? Lying is just a normal part of our social interaction, although we all hate being lied to, don't we? I've never met anybody who said, oh, yeah, I don't mind being lied to, I like people telling me lies. A bit of flattery, I don't mind, but generally lies, we, we just don't like them, do we? Yet, one in sentence in eight minutes, mind you, they're the ones that they identified. That wouldn't be included in the taxi driver lie because he wouldn't identify that as a lie because he believes it's true. Now, with that background about sin, let's turn to Psalm 14. I hadn't forgotten Psalm 14. That's, that's part of the goal. It's the psalm of the fool. And within the Bible, he's not just an intellectual idiot. It's one who fails to live wisely, who fails to live in accordance with reality, who fails to live sensibly. So here in Psalm 14, he says in his heart, there's no God. This is not the intellectual philosophical atheist, though he would be included, but the practical atheist, the person who lives just as if there isn't a God, who just ignores God, who lives without God. And notice the psalmist has a threefold conclusion about the fool in verse 1. He's corrupt, he does abominable deeds, and there are none that does good. He does no good deeds, and there are none amongst the fools that do good. Notice the psalmist's first one there, he's corrupt. For deep in their own person they are corrupt, perverted and distorted, and they are ruined. We don't like to think of people like this. We like to trust people. In fact, you have to trust people to have a relationship with them, and so we like to trust people. And we don't like being judgmental about others. We don't like it about ourselves even, so we certainly don't like doing it about others. And we don't think that they are really bad. They're just they do some bad things, but they're not themselves bad. That people do sins, but they're not sinners, rather than seeing that they do sins because they are sinners. It comes out of our very heart. The fool says there's no God. The fool is corrupt. Secondly, being corrupt, he does that which are, is abominable, repugnant, objectionable, the kinds of things that make you want to be sick. We keep seeing the good deeds that, in people. We keep being surprised by the bad. But we're not really surprised, are we? Did you lock your motor car when you came in? Why? Did you lock your, car, your flat or your house when you left? Why? Have you got an insurance policy against theft? Why? Do not believe what people say. Believe how they put their money. We will not just walk away from our possessions and say, they'll be safe, no one will steal here. Because we really believe that people will steal. When you buy something a house, a flat, a unit, you take advice. When you look at your death, you take legal advice and drop a will. If people are not sinful, why do you need a will? If people are not sinful, why do you have to have a conveyancing system for house change? If people are not sinful, why do you need a guarantee? Why do you need a contract? Why? If people are not sinful, why have we got lawyers? growth industry. We keep being astonished at the dreadful ways people treat each other. 
the way they treat their neighbours, the way they treat their family members. Having moved into a unit in the last six months or so, it's fascinating. It really is against the code of unit dwelling to get to know your neighbours, isn't it? If you've got to live that close to people, you must not know each other. It is fundamental part. You can know the people two or three blocks down the street. They're very friendly. But the ones in your block, you're not allowed to know because you've got to share a wall with each other. You've got to share a staircase with each other. You mustn't get to know each other. Dreadful things happen to people who know people. No, it's much better to stay anonymous. And the ways in which family members treat each other is just dreadful, isn't it? Husbands and wives, the terrible sexual abuse amongst the de facto marriages, the children who have been deserted and abused. We keep being shocked when we shouldn't be. If a person is corrupt in themselves, their deeds will be abominable. But it's not just some of the fools. There is none that does good is the third part of verse 1's conclusion on the fools. It's not that some fools do the right things and others do the wrong, but all fools do the wrong. None does good. All have gone astray. Now the salutary evaluation of the fool in verse 1 is then extended in verses 2 and 3 to the foolishness of humanity. For the Lord is pictured as looking down from heaven on the children of men. The children of men in Hebrew is the sons of Adam, which should, of course, spark your mind off to think of sinfulness on a wide front. Looking for people who are not fools. And so he is looking for wisdom. Any who have understanding. Uh, the word understanding, there is the word wise, who will act wisely as the ESV footnote has. Those who are not fools, those who have the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of understanding. He's looking for those who are seeking God, those who are not turned aside. But you will see there in verse 3, all that he sees is that they have turned aside. They haven't earnestly sought him and drawn near to him and wanted to base their lives upon their creator and their judge, upon the reality of their God. No, but they have turned aside. They have all turned aside together as a whole. The sons of Adam have rebelled against God. And so humanity as a whole together has become corrupt, verse 3. Together they have become corrupt. The word corrupt there in verse 3 is different to the Hebrew word in verse 1, but it means much the same thing. It's fair enough to have the same English word. It's, it's weak and tainted and worthless. Together they have become worthless. So that the judgment on the fool's action is that on the sons of Adam. None does good. And it's emphasised at the end of verse 3, not even one. The character of humanity as a whole is that there is none who do good, the good that they should do, because they have all become corrupt through their foolish rebellion against God. Notice how it comes, the anatomy of sin turning away from God, becoming corrupt, doing abominable deeds. Now the foolishness of all this can be seen in the perversity of evil in verses 4 to 6. They classically do evil and ignore God. And it is astonishing. Look at the rhetorical question of verse 4. 
have they no knowledge, the evil do, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat up bread and do not call upon the Lord? I mean, what kind of idiots are they to consume God's people, to ignore him like this? Don't they know God? Don't they know that he will ultimately protect his people, that he will judge those who attack his people? To act with such total disregard with God, to pick a fight with God is dumb. Sin is about this fundamental foolishness, living as if we don't have to give answer to anyone, living as if we don't have to give answer for ourselves and our actions, living as if we do not have to give answer for what we do to other people. That is what it means to say there is no God. The way I act is the way I act. The only person I have to give answer to is me and my conscience is on a sliding scale. If I'm happy with myself, then everything's okay. I'm not answerable to anybody. It's got nothing necessarily to do with intellectual speculation as to the existence and ontology of a divine being. It's nothing about that. It's just got to do with saying, hey, I don't have to answer to anybody. I am the boss of me. That's, that's what the story is. One of my children went to an anti-drug program for children. It's taken there by his school, this whole school education program, and he brought home the stickers from it and the bag and all the rest of it, and he stuck one of the stickers on his bedroom door. It stuck there. You know, the ones you don't want stick permanently. There's no way of scraping ever off. You know? The ones you really want, they fall off in ten minutes. And so it stuck there for about five, ten years. Back when we left that house, it was still stuck there. And it was this big sign, big sign saying, I am the boss of me. It's a good anti-drugs program in one sense, isn't it? It's teaching children not to be pushed around by peer group pressure and things like that. But of course, it's fundamentally wrong. You're not the boss of you. God is the boss of you. And that is why you shouldn't be engaged in such behaviour. That actually is a stronger motivation. You are answerable to God for what you do with your body. He's going to hold you to account. Every hair of your head matters to him. Every idle word you ever say matters to him. You are not a boss of you. God is the boss of you. And what are you doing about it? Him. But there will be terror at the judgment. So verse 5 reminds us. That moment of truth that they cannot ultimately avoid for when God comes with his people the generation of the righteous, then those who have been destroying his people will have to give answer for what they have done. Those who have been ignoring him will see it with terrifying terror. Yet now, at the moment, they are antagonistic to the poor, destroying the little people who cannot protect themselves, the widows and the orphans. And notice why they are so antagonistic. It is because the poor are trusting God. The ESV is helpful to us here because it gives you a footnote on the word but in verse 6, which you will see down the bottom is for. The Hebrew word is for or because. That is, verse 6 reads, you would shame the plans of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. It's not an immediately easy thing to understand and you can understand therefore why people have used the alternative but, but the Hebrew word is clearly because. 
you would shame the plans of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. That is, because the person trusts in God, because the person looks to God, because the person prays to God, so the godless will make fun of him and ridicule him and attack him and rip him off. And it is the character of society, friends, isn't it? That those who want to put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are made fun of. We are called all kinds of rude names, aren't we? Fundamentalist, Bible bashers, narrow-minded, bigots. There's any number of names that can be used to marginalise those who put their trust in the Lord. Silly, stupid people. The kind of religious, superstitious kind of group of people. And they have no say in the community. Uh, writing a letter to the paper is a very great difficulty for me because whether I write reverend or not, it will be put in there by the newspapers. I do not have an opinion as a citizen because I am religious and once you see reverend in front of the newspaper article letter, you say, oh, well, of course, he's religious. That's what he's on. Suddenly you cease being a person with an idea. You are religious and can be marginalised and rejected. That is the character of the communication in our society, isn't it? That you're not allowed to have a view if you are a religious person. It is a perversity of the character that their foolish rejection of God makes them particularly aggressive towards those who trust him. It's just like Jesus warned us. He said in John chapter 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The kinds of persecutions we have in Australia, the kind of marginalisations and rejections here, of course, are trivial compared to what our friends are suffering elsewhere in the world. This has been a horrific week in Pakistan for Christians, hasn't it? Firstly, gunmen come and shoot up a school for the children of missionaries. And then later in the week, grenades are thrown or grenades are thrown in a missionary hospital. Here are people who have sacrificed their lives and the comforts and the wealth and affluence of the Western world to go to a country that is desperately in need of education and of, and of health. They have put their children in a special school and that, of course, is the school that is marked out in particular for this vicious attack on the children. Fortunately, the children were saved, but unfortunately, six or so members of the staff and the, the guards and the like were killed. Likewise, it was the missionaries who brought health and medicine and hospitals to a country like Pakistan. They were the ones who actually saw the plight and the needs in Pakistan for medical help. They are the ones who have raised up hospitals and taught, and taught doctors and nurses across that country. But the perversity of the foolish mind that rejects the Lord Jesus Christ will throw a grenade into the weak, the sick, the children... So the psalmist concludes his poem, looking forward to salvation in verse 7, looking forward to that time of salvation would come out of Zion, that is Jerusalem, when the Lord would restore the fortunes of the poor, of his people. 
Then there would be a time for joy and gladness and singing and pleasures when the world no longer run by fools who are in the rejection of God. The world is no longer run by those who are corrupt and doing abominable deeds when the world is run by the Messiah. Now this psalm is taken up by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 when he teaches us that we are all under sin. The ESV in its first edition added the word power, its second edition has removed the word power already, under the power of sin. It was a good attempt to try and translate it because what it's saying is sin is powerful. It's not just that I sin, it is sin is powerful in me and over me. Sin is a force to be reckoned with. Once you become a sinner, you are no longer neutral. You are no longer playing on an even playing field. You are now somebody who is under the power, but it could be more than power, so that's why they've taken it out, under the control, under the authority, under the judgment, under the bondage of sin. We are under sin. And it's both Jews who had the Old Testament and the Greeks who had philosophy and who had ethics and who had prided themselves in their education who were under sin. There is nobody over sin, we are all under sin. And to demonstrate this teaching, Paul quotes the Old Testament with a series of verses from the Psalms and Isaiah. Uh, come with me across to Romans. None is righteous, no, not one. And then he quotes Psalm 14. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he quotes a series of other verses from the Old Testament. We can see those up there. Their throat is an open grave for their tongues. Uh, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. A series of other verses that demonstrate two things. Firstly, the universality of sin. There is none who are righteous. No, not one, for we are all under sin, be it the Jew with the law or the Greek with his high-sounding ethical systems of philosophy, all are captivated by the rebelliousness against God. And so secondly, and more importantly, both for the psalm and for Romans 3, it illustrates the character of sin. It illustrates the very nature of sin and its effects. It illustrates the depths of iniquity. For we see, as in Psalm 14, this anatomy of sin. There's no understanding, foolishness, no seeking for God, but rather turning away from God. The fool says there is no God. And therefore we become worthless, and becoming worthless and corrupt, we do the worthless, corrupt things. And it's reflected in the other quotes that are there, from verse 13 following. Their throat, their tongue, their lips, their mouths are all corrupted. And their feet and their paths and their ways are all evil. For there is no fear of God before their eyes. Tomorrow morning you're going to read the newspapers. Late tonight you'll watch some television news. And look at what you hear and see and it will be all about the expression of the abominable deeds of humans. 
I can tell you what's there already. I can tell you tomorrow morning's newspaper. I guarantee there'll be stories about corruption. There'll be stories about power. There'll be stories about oppression. There'll be stories about murder. There'll be stories about rape. It'll be in the newspaper tomorrow. I'll change the details. I can change which country it's in, what time it was done, the name of the person who did this. And they, but they're just the details. The story is the same every day, in every news broadcast, in every newspaper. And look at what we call entertainment. Go into your video shop and look. Don't, don't necessarily get out anything. You don't have to do it. Just, just look at the covers of the videos. Row after row after row. What is there? Beautiful stories of lovely creation, wonders. Now that's on the ABC because no one in their right mind would pay for that and call it entertainment. I mean, everybody I know says they like those nature programs. It's just nobody watches them. That is the character of it, isn't it? No, no, what is there in hundreds and hundreds and thousands of video shows? Why? They're all about murder and theft and corruption and power and assassination and rape. And that's what they're about. It's about violence. It's about the inhumanity of humanity, which is profoundly human. And that's what we call entertainment. That's how we want to spend our, our off time, if you don't mind the word off. That is how we want to kind of just let our brains float around in the normal muck that we live in. Have you puzzled about the continuing capacity for human warfare? You see, Australia's had a wonderful period of peace. Have we? Between 1945 and 1965, Australians didn't go to war, really. Not very much. I mean, there was the Korean War, wasn't there? But that was a small affair. And then there was that war up in Malaysia. Between 1945 and 65, there were 50 major international wars in the world, a period which we would consider was relatively peaceful. There are wars and continuing wars around the world. It is the nature of humanity to keep at war. Open your eyes and look at how the poor are always losing and how the rich are always going ahead. The rich seem to even be able to make money when they go bankrupt. It is astonishing their capacity to live in big mansions, drive wonderful cars, as soon as they get out of prison for having ripped off the systems. The rich do not lose. The poor never win. Here, of course, is the arrogance of fools. Because they rule in the world of commerce and law and government and education, they think they rule in God's world. They think they rule in God's place. It's the great confusion of the intellect and religion and morality. There are people of great intellect who get confused by their own brilliance. They forget about God and so become very clever fools. They're much cleverer than I am. Much cleverer, I guess, than you are. The cleverest of the clever can still be great fools. They may even be involved in religion and religious ceremonies. They may argue for morality, but they are fools. For they're not living for God. They're not seeking for God. They are ignoring the judgment of God. And they don't understand the entangling depths of sin. How turning your back on God leads you into corruption of your very person that will issue forth in abominable deeds. Bertrand Russell, 
was a man who lived for about 90 odd years, a great man of the 20th century. A couple of years ago I bought volume one of his biography written by a man called Ray Monk who's a philosopher and a great uh, fan in the first place of Bertrand Russell and who set out and has written two large volumes on the life of Bertrand Russell. It was a very long life. It was a very colourful life. A lot happened in the life of Bertrand Russell. I have never read the second volume. I've never bought it. It's, uh, I saw it the other day for sale and decided against it because reading the first 45 years of Bertrand Russell's life was exhausting enough. Bertrand Russell was mistaught about God by his grandmother who was a Unitarian and who therefore denied the Lord Jesus Christ and his misunderstandings of Christianity always continued in his life. But Bertrand Russell rejected God, even that disfigured God that his grandmother taught. He said there was no God, both in philosophical atheistic sense but more importantly in this relational sense he lived as if there was no God. Bertrand Russell was as clever as any 20th century man that there lived. He was a mathematician and a philosopher, an ethicist and a political activist. He uh, was one of the great mathematicians of the early part of the 20th century and his great work that he wrote as a Cambridge scholar and don stood the test of uh, making great development in the history of mathematics, even though his, uh, his disciple Wittgenstein actually disproved his chief theories. Bertrand Russell was one of the great clever brains. He and I in the same uh, test uh, would not be in the same class. It would be an, a no-show because I wouldn't turn up. There's no way that I could think my brains anywhere matched the brains of a Bertrand Russell. He was a great one. But he was a deeply marred and corrupt fool. He went to jail in the First World War as a pacifist. One of the very few people who protested so vigorously against the war that he would go to jail. He was a pacifist. No, he wasn't really. He was a pacifist against the European war because he was an Edwardian who believed that man had reached such a pinnacle of civilization that he should be able to solve all his problems by discussion. But Bertrand Russell himself believed in colonial wars because he thought that natives in the colonies deserved to be uh, butchered and killed and murdered, to be brought into line. He had no trouble at all in killing natives. That was, a, that was a nothing. It was just Europeans who shouldn't be killed. He was an egalitarian, a Fabian socialist left-winger who wouldn't stand... No, that's not true either. He used his lordship and his high, his high birth especially to gain favours in jail like a good cell and a pleasant read. He was a moral man. He wrote books on morality and ethics, on books on love and treating each other by truth and values and he wrote lots and lots of books of an ethical nature. And so he was a great moralist. Well, no, not really, friends. He was a great seducer of women, especially young women, especially other people's wives, in particular his friends' wives. He abused many women and abandoned them. He saw several of them wind up in psychiatric care and a couple of them suicide. He promised them marriage and didn't offer it and didn't actually come through to it. And in his conflict with some other families, he tried twice to murder other men and failed for his lack of physical competence. Here is, you see, one of the cleverest men of the 20th century who said there is no God and who became corrupt 
and did abominable deeds. That's what Psalm 14 is about. The rejection of God leads to the corruption of a person and the abominable nature of their deeds. Now the failure of the world to understand this is seen in the confusion over education or the cross. For whenever the world recognises that it has got a problem, the solution is always the school system. It's always education. We need to teach children about this. We've got to include it in the curriculum. And so the school curriculum gets bigger and bigger and bigger and less time is actually devoted to things like reading, writing, arithmetic because we have to have so many classes on civics and child abuse and on drugs and on avoiding strangers and, 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 and. It just goes on all the things that our poor primary school teachers have to teach because we have these social problems that we can't solve, we don't know how to solve and so we offload it onto the school system. That's where the solution is. But of course the school system is not the solution. We have the best educated children on substance abuse in the history of mankind. Our teenagers know more about substances than any generation ever before and they know more about the consequences of abusing substances any generation before and we've never had such a generation of substance abusers. More information just means that they are very clever, well-educated substance abusers. It actually hasn't changed the problem because the problem is not lack of information. The, the reason why young men and women are turning to all kinds of abusive substances is because they, it's not because they don't know what those substances will do. They know very well what they will do. We thought that sex education would overcome the problem of unwanted pregnancies and, of course, we have a soaring rate of abortion in our community. Unwanted pregnancies haven't been overcome by that because that's not what the problem is. The problems of the heart like that are not just problems of the mind. They are right in seeing that there is a problem of the mind. There is folly here that we need to address. There is a foolishness that we need to overcome, but they're wrong. It's not lack of information. It's not increased intelligence or education that will solve it. The problem is relational foolishness. The denial of the reality of God. And that relational foolishness is overcome not by more education but by the cross where God made peace between himself and the sons of Adam. By his son dying in our place, bringing forgiveness, he brings a fresh start. Bringing reconciliation, he brings a new relationship with God. Bringing regeneration, he adopts us into his family as his people. You do not fix up a divorce by giving them information. You need to change the relationship. The divorce between God and man is not going to be resolved by giving people degrees in theology. It's resolved by God taking the initiative in purchasing us back for himself through the death of his son. It is a completely different way of thinking. But when salvation comes out of Zion, then is the time for joy. And as it says in the New Testament, rejoice again, I say to you, rejoice. Well now, before we rejoice in song, you want to ask questions and make comments about what's been said.
What's a Unitarian? Count Zodzini lived in the 16th century in Italy and he taught that the Bible is completely true but being completely true is written by God who is completely rational and completely moral and so everything in the Bible must be rational and moral. Of course it's back to front thinking. Where is rationality and morality to be found? It's found in God. But he then placed God under his idea of what was rational and what was moral. And so he excluded the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as immoral and he excluded the Trinity as being irrational. How can three be one and one be three? He was chased into Poland in a place called Rakov and so the, so the Socinians, Carlo and Count Sozzini, became the Rakovites. They moved across to England and to North America and became the Unitarians by the 19th century. And so the two key characteristics of the Unitarians, there's still a small Unitarian church here in Sydney, is that they deny the Trinity and they de deny the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as an atonement for our sins. In other words, they fundamentally deny the Gospel. They were very popular in upper-class English 19th century people, such as um, uh, Bertrand Russell's mother, grandmother uh, uh, they were very popular in that kind of circle because it meant you could be religious without having to acknowledge Jesus as God or yourself as sinful which of course the upper class love just enough religion to kind of give you respectability and not enough to actually change your life very upper class religion but they were very important in moving the 19th century away from God into atheism. It was the halfway house between belief in God and atheism. Um, what's her name? Uh, George Eliot uh, was seduced by the uh, Unitarians, uh, seduced in both senses, physical as well as that. So whenever you hear about George Eliot coming through her intellectual genius to deny Christianity, it actually had to do with immoral behaviour of local Unitarians. But that's another story. Yeah. Oh, I do. I just can't help myself. I keep slipping back into sin and I often wind up having to then to explain it. Um, sin is a lovely word because it's monosyllabic, simple, straightforward. The alternative word that I refer is rebellion. That's such a big clumsy word, isn't it? And so I slip up. And sin is our word. I'd like to reclaim it. But trying to reclaim words is a lost cause, our linguists tell us, because once a word shifts in its meaning, there's no point hanging on to the old meaning and expecting your hearers to understand it because the word has shifted. That's just what happens with a living language. It's a bit of a problem for us. Godlessness. Yeah. Psalm 14 is repeated in Psalm 53. 
In Psalm 53, it refers to God all the way through. In Psalm 14, it talks about look, Yahweh. But it's not that they are saying Yahweh doesn't exist or I'm going to live without Yahweh. It's saying God doesn't exist. So the, see, the word God means a ruler. That's why there are many gods and yet there's only one God. There are many gods because there's many people who live under many rulers. The devil is called the god of this age because he's a ruler in this age. But there is ultimately only one God who rules over all, the God of gods, and that is Yahweh. And so it's saying there are people who are rejecting having a ruler. That's what people do. Now we happen to know that that ruler is Yahweh. And that comes out in verse 2 when it says, the Lord looks down from heaven. To see that. Well, like I told you, it's not the happiest psalm, is it? I mean, we had a lovely day and we've just come to church and been given all about our corrupt nature. So do remember verse 7 there. Have a look at verse 7 again, just to lift your spirits a little bit because there is a happy end to the psalm, so at least let's finish on a happy note. That is, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. It did when the Lord Jesus Christ came to Jerusalem. For then he restored the fortunes of his people. Through his death and resurrection we turned back to God and can find forgiveness for our rebellion against God and can be born again so that we love God and to seek after him. And when that happens, well, look what he says, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Then that is the time for song. That is the time for joy. That is the time for happiness. And hey, we're going to sing now. So while our musicians get there, let's turn to I Cannot Tell, which I think is the one we're going to sing to finish off. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.